In one story, Theseus is standing on the threshold, looking into the darkness beyond the doorway. He should be sweating in the midday heat, but the sunless air seeping out of the labyrinth is cold enough to make him shiver. Then again, he might be shivering for other reasons. He breathes deep and steps through the door. The sword of Aegeus, hidden beneath his clothes, shifts uncomfortably, but he's careful not to react. He doesn't want to alert the guards, who carefully watch over the human sacrifices while standing at a comfortable distance from the doorway. Now the light is behind him. He keeps walking, step by step, until all the light is gone, and he is alone in the damp, chill darkness. With his left hand, he reaches into a hidden pocket to produce a ball of thread tied around a metal pin at the end. Remembering Ariadne's advice, he jams the pin into a crack in the doorpost, then gently cradles the thread in his left hand. With his right hand, he pulls out the sword and holds it out in front of him. Then he begins to walk. Daedalus and Ariadne advise Theseus to walk straight, never turn, always go down, never up. And when he finally reached the center of the maze, he would have to fight and kill Asterion, the Minotaur. Ariadne's thread would guide Theseus back to the entrance. Without his vision to aid him, Theseus strains to sense the shape of the walls around him. He can hear the others shuffling into the maze far behind. Somewhere ahead of him, the Minotaur waits for this year's sacrifices to arrive. Suddenly, the quality of sound around Theseus changes. The echoes widen. There's a thick, musty smell, a scraping sound like wood on stone, a rough snort. The Minotaur is here. Theseus' hand grips his sword. The dim light glints off the metal. The gleam jumps to the Minotaur's black eyes. He swings his sword and strikes the stone floor. His arm numb from the impact, he swings the sword in an arc in front of him, and then two bolts of pain erupt into Theseus' torso. The Minotaur impales Theseus, then flings him to the floor, and quickly bends over him, pinning his limbs to the ground. There's a sound like a low chuckle in the dark, or maybe a guttural growl, then a hot breath, then pain, then nothing. King Ludwig II did not enjoy being king of Bavaria. He was born to be a ruler and was trained to be a king from an early age by a series of tutors. These tutors were expected to cater to his princely desires and at the same time instill a sense of noble duty and obligation. As if this wasn't confusing enough, Ludwig found as he reached adolescence that he was romantically attracted to men. He struggled to ignore, or at least suppress, this attraction in order to remain a good Roman Catholic and loyal Bavarian noble. He withdrew into himself, finding solace in the medieval Germanic legends of the Grail Knight Parsifal and his son Lohengrin, the Knight of the Swan. Fueled by his love for Richard Wagner's grand operatic versions of those old tales, he daydreamed about the glorious court of King Louis XIV of France, the Sun King. As Ludwig became more withdrawn, some of his happiest times were spent during his summers at Hohenschwangau Castle in Lower Bavaria, an ancient fortress renovated by Ludwig's father into a neo-Gothic palace. 
The interior of the castle was covered with wall paintings that portrayed the local history, as well as the old stories of Parsifal and Lohengrin. Hohenschwangau translates in English to the High Swan region. When Ludwig was just 18, his father passed away, and all the responsibilities of the monarchy fell onto his shoulders. But Ludwig had no interest in the usual kingly activities of setting royal policy, appearing at public ceremonies, or producing an heir to the throne. Instead, he immersed himself in the worlds of music, art, and architecture. One of his first acts as king was to summon Wagner for a lengthy royal audience. The monarch would become the composer's most important patron for the rest of Wagner's career. When Bavaria lost its independence during the unification of Germany, Ludwig's royal authority was mostly eliminated. By 1871, he no longer had to even pretend to make much interest in affairs of state, and he devoted himself to his own passions. Ludwig never forgot his happy days at his family's castle, so he decided he would build his own beautiful palaces. There was Schloss Neuschwanstein, new swan on the rock castle, built above Ludwig's beloved Hohenschwangau castle on a rocky peak with Romanesque towers straight out of Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom, and decorated inside with frescoes depicting scenes from Wagner's operas. There was also Herrenscheimsee, a partial replica of the palace at Versailles. Ludwig had never lost his fascination with the Sun King, but the only palace completed during Ludwig's own lifetime was the Linderhof Palace. It, too, was inspired in part by Versailles, with the sun motif appearing in all the interior decorations and some architecture taken from the grounds of the French palace. But Ludwig had come to style himself as the Night King, often sleeping in his altar-like bed during the day, then waking at sunset to eat his breakfast. While sitting in a seat, positioned among the branches of an ancient linden tree. He would sometimes read by candlelight all night, sitting in the Hall of Mirrors, or if the moon was bright enough, go for a ride on an ornate sleigh, accompanied by footmen in 18th century livery. The Venus Grotto was an artificial lake and grotto built to illustrate the first act of Richard Wagner's opera Tannhauser, where the noble bard consorts with the goddess of love in her mystical cave. Ludwig enjoyed being rowed across the lake in his gilded swan boat. Twenty-four electrical generators were installed in order to create the lighting effects that matched the shifting colors of the mythical grotto. There were other features inspired by Wagner's operas. Hunding's hut, taken from Act I of Die Valkyrie, where Ludwig was hold celebratory feasts, and the Gournemans' Hermitage, taken from Act Three of Parsifal, where Ludwig retired to every year on Good Friday for religious contemplation. Then there were the 125 acres of landscape gardens, as well as the formal gardens surrounding the palace, and decorated with elaborate sculptures and fountains portraying the elements, the seasons, and the continents. But all of Ludwig's own wealth wasn't enough to cover the cost of these dream palaces. By 1885, Ludwig was 14 million marks in debt. In order to continue, he borrowed money from his family and planned even more projects a Gothic castle on the hill of Falkenstein, a Byzantine palace, a Chinese summer palace. He demanded his cabinet ministers take out loans from other royal families in Europe. Instead, the ministers decided to dethrone him, using Ludwig's introversion and eccentricity against him. They spent months creating a case that Ludwig was insane and thus unfit to rule. Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany, 
dismissed the minister's claims, but did nothing to hinder their efforts. After some attempts to escape and some popular resistance, Ludwig was arrested on June 12, 1886, and imprisoned at Baird Castle on the shores of Lake Starnberg. The following evening, Ludwig was allowed to take a walk down to the shores of the lake, accompanied by Dr. Bernhard von Guden, a psychiatrist and chief of the Munich Asylum. When the two men didn't return, search parties hunted through the grounds for hours. The men were finally found head and shoulders above the shallow water along the shore of the lake. No one knows how they died. Did Ludwig attempt to escape and drown? He was a strong swimmer, but perhaps the cold water gave him a heart attack. Did he attack the doctor only to be shot by assassins? The guards that night heard nothing, and no scars or wounds were found on Ludwig's body. Ludwig's death remains a mystery. Perhaps he looked out over the lake at sunset and imagined himself back in his grotto at Lindelhof Palace, seeing the beautiful shifting colors and their shadows dancing across the stone, and he was making his way one last time towards the naiads and the sirens to lay his head in the lap of Venus and be at peace. In one story, Theseus stabs Asterion the Minotaur in the throat with his sword, then decapitates him. Theseus follows Ariadne's thread back out of the labyrinth. He escapes the island of Crete with the other young Athenians, the intended sacrifices, which include Ariadne and her younger sister Phaedra. They sail to the stony island of Naxos, largest of the Cyclades. Exhausted, the Athenians fall asleep on the shore in the cool of the evening. But Theseus lies awake in the sand, looking up at the stars, pondering what to do next. He knew that Ariadne had fallen in love with him, but he also knew in his heart that he didn't love her in return. But he decided that night that he should return to Athens with Ariadne and make her his wife out of gratitude for her help. It would be the honorable thing to do, the noble thing. As he drifts off to sleep, he fails to notice that he is being watched. The god Dionysus, the beautiful god of wine and revelry, happens to be on Naxos when the young Athenians land. He approaches them as they sleep on the beach. When he finds Ariadne, it's love at first sight. Dionysus decides then and there that Ariadne should be his consort. When the travelers wake in the morning sun, Dionysus greets them and explains to the surprised Athenians that Ariadne will be staying behind with him as they are to be married, and Phaedra should stay behind as well so the sisters would not be separated. Before Ariadne can respond, Theseus proclaims that he will do the noble, the honorable thing, and take Ariadne back to Athens to be his bride. The travelers quickly board their ship and sail off, as Dionysus calmly watches from the shore. Perhaps the sailors forgot that Dionysus is not only the inventor of wine, and god of celebration, he is also the master of madness, and the god of revenge. As the ship moves towards the horizon, Dionysus decides on a trick that he played once on some pirates that mistook him for a mortal and tried to kidnap him and sell him into slavery. He suddenly appears on the deck of the Athenian ship, a wide smile on his handsome face. Ivy vines grow from where he stands and quickly cover the deck. The leaves glare in the sun 
with an unearthly color. Then the air is filled with the sound of flutes, music that was not meant for the ears of mortals. The men and women on the ship begin to go mad. To get away from the uncanny sounds and colors, they throw themselves into the water. When they come to the surface, they are no longer human, but sleek dolphins. They swim swift circles around the ship, as if in praise of their strange new lord. Only a few, including Theseus, remain on the ship. They try to seize the oars, only to find that they have turned into snakes that wind around their arms. The masts, too, shift and thrash about, turning into giant serpents. Ariadne has covered her ears and closed her eyes, but suddenly it's quiet. She feels a hand on her shoulder, and she opens her eyes to find herself back on Naxos, along with Dionysus and Phaedra. Come, my love, he says, let us begin, and walks up and away from the shore. She turns away from the water and follows him, not looking back to see the prow of the far-off ship slowly sink out of sight. You've probably heard of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. The legend goes like this. When William Wirt Winchester, of Winchester Rifles fame, died of tuberculosis in 1881, his widow Sarah Winchester became a very wealthy woman. William left her more than $20 million and half ownership of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, which brought in the equivalent of more than $23,000 today. At some point, After both her husband and infant daughter had died, Sarah went to a medium so she could talk with the spirit of her late husband. His ghost told her to abandon New Haven, Connecticut and move west. There, Sarah should build a structure to house both herself and the spirits of those who had been killed by the Winchester rifles that had made Sarah so rich. In 1884, Sarah Winchester bought an unfinished farmhouse in the Santa Clara Valley, and work began right away on her future mansion. There was no master plan for the house, no architect, just Sarah's personal desires and preferences, which changed day by day. It grew taller, from two stories to three, four, finally up to seven stories. The house grew to include 40 bedrooms, 47 fireplaces for at least 17 chimneys, and two basements. There were two ballrooms, though one was never finished, decorated with parquet floors and gold and silver chandeliers and bedecked in bold colors. In some ways, it was a home of the future. There were modern indoor toilets and showers, though Sarah had the only hot shower. The house had both steam and forced air heating, push-button gas lights, and three elevators, one of which was electric. But there were oddities in this modern mansion. The house had over 10,000 panes of glass installed, many of which were custom-designed for Sarah by Tiffany Company, though some of those were in windows that looked out onto other rooms in the house. Because of the ongoing construction and lack of plans, some stairs went nowhere. There were doors that opened onto blank walls, stairs with risers of different sizes. There were so many rooms, some were literally lost. In 2016, a forgotten attic space was rediscovered, containing a sewing machine, a couch, paintings, and a pump organ, among other things. And though Sarah would stop the construction for a month here and there... The workers always returned, and the building went on. There was more work to do. As Sarah got older, her arthritis made it impossible to climb the stairs in her house, 
so many of the old stairs were torn out and replaced with risers only a few inches high. The Great Earthquake of 1906 mostly spared the house because of a design that allowed the house to shift over its brick foundation, but of course repairs had to be made. The construction was finally stopped by Sarah's death on September 5, 1922. It was still unfinished. The house soon became a legend, a testament to the tormented guilt of a woman literally haunted by the source of her own immense fortune. But is that really true? Did Sarah Winchester feel guilty? Was she actually trying to create a maze to confuse her spectral enemies, only to get lost within it herself? It seems like the mythology of the Winchester Mystery House was mostly a creation of John and Mamie Brown, who became the owners after Sarah passed away. It was they who opened the house up to the public for tours five months after Sarah's death, with Mamie Brown herself acting as the first tour guide. The Browns made the house a tourist attraction, which it remains to this day. But the legend has continued, because the story it tells is one of moral retribution and justice. It's comforting to think that those who profit off of human misery sometimes feel bad about it. Sarah Winchester was made unimaginably wealthy through the slaughter of thousands. But it's hard to believe that she lost a moment of sleep over the fates of those killed by Winchester rifles. She probably wasn't guilty, but she was depressed. All her money couldn't bring back her child or her husband. The world must have seemed like a cold and empty place. So she did the best she could to make her own world, one that changed and evolved according to her wishes. A place where, no matter how temporarily lost she became, she always knew, deep down, that she was still home. In one story, Theseus decides to follow his heart. He wakes the other travelers, and they slip away in the night, leaving Ariadne and Phaedra behind. Dionysus weds Ariadne, and they have several children together. When she dies, Dionysus descends into the netherworld of Hades to bring her back, along with his mother Semele, and the three of them ascend to Mount Olympus to become gods. Theseus continues on his journey back to Athens, but he remains troubled by his decision to leave Ariadne behind on Naxos. In his distraction, he almost makes a terrible mistake. Before he left Athens, he told his father, King Aegeus, that the king should look carefully at his sails as he returns to port. If the ship put up the white sails, it would mean they succeeded in killing the Minotaur. If the ship put up the black sails, it would mean they had failed and Theseus was dead. Theseus returns with the white sails gleaming in the evening light. The celebrations in the city stretch on for days. Afterwards, as Theseus slumbers in his princely bed, agents of the Palantides family slip into the palace. The Palantides were the sons of Pallas and the nephews of King Aegeus, and they coveted the throne of Athens for themselves. It was they who had, out of jealousy, arranged for the murder of the great athlete Androgios, eldest son of King Minos of Crete, while Androgios was in Athens for the Panathenic Games. The same murder which had angered King Minos and caused him to create the labyrinth and the sacrifices to punish the Athenians. Now the Palantides assassins, quietly and methodically, killed King Aegeus, Queen Pasiphae, Prince Theseus, the entire family. By the time the sun rose in the morning, the house of Pallas ruled over Athens. 
In 1900, Albert Adsit Clemens purchased the property at 3400 Prospect Street Northwest in the heart of the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C. Albert Clemens was the nephew of Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. And the house was better known as Halcyon House, a name given to it by its original owner, Benjamin Stoddard, whose ghost still haunted the property. Stoddard had been a respected businessman who had worked for George Washington to secure the land that was later used to create the District of Columbia. He then served as the first U.S. Secretary of the Navy under President John Adams. The building of Halcyon House began in 1787 and took several years. After his retirement from the Navy, Stoddard and his family lived in the house year-round, and he became a fixture of D.C.'s high society. But when most of the other land dealers and speculators in Washington went bankrupt in 1800, Stoddard suddenly found himself nearly broke. When he was sued by one of those land speculators, he was financially ruined. Then his wife died. When Stoddard himself died in 1813, Halcyon House passed to his children, and from there went through several owners. When Stoddard himself died in 1813, Halcyon House passed to his children, and from there went through several owners. No one seemed to want to live there very long, possibly because of Stoddard's ghost, which could sometimes be seen looking forlornly out of the windows. When Albert Clemens bought the house, he apparently paid the ghost no mind. Instead, he focused on expanding the house, adding a new roof, and expanding the front of the house all the way to the street. He added five large wooden angels to the roof, but they swayed in the wind and he was forced to take them down. But he kept the wooden cigar store Indian over the front door, as well as the two sarcophagi buried in the backyard with mummies inside. He would often sit on a barrel outside, directing the renovations. Dressed so shabbily that many of his upper-crust Prospect Street neighbors didn't realize that he was the house's owner. Albert would clean himself up and dress in his best clothes for his trips out of town, where he would buy various antiques and collectibles. He bought so many that he filmed the house, and he started piling them, dozens of them, in the bathtubs. It was the inside of Halcyon House that truly reflected Albert's vision. He believed that as long as he kept adding on to the house, he could not die. Continuously renovating Halcyon House would make him immortal. A friend of Albert's who was a carpenter moved into the basement, and they got to work. They crammed 39 more rooms and 14 bathrooms into Halcyon House. There were doors that opened onto brick walls, staircases that led nowhere, room areas that were framed without any walls at all, closets that opened into other closets, rooms so tiny that they could barely fit a chair. There were doors that opened onto brick walls, staircases that led nowhere, room areas that were framed without any walls at all, closets that opened onto other closets, rooms so tiny that they could barely fit a chair. One room was concealed below a trap door with stairs that led down. Another room was hidden at the end of a long, winding corridor. Every wall was covered with artwork, and antiques and curios littered the floors. The home renovations continued for decades. In the 1930s, Albert decided to rent out some of the small rooms that had formed between the new facade and the original house, but prospective tenants were put off by Albert's refusal to have any of the house wired for electricity. Despite the continuous construction, Albert died on March 17, 1938. 
In his will, he stipulated that upon his death, his heart was to be pierced with a sharp silver instrument that he had helpfully set aside for this purpose. But none of his executors were willing to follow through with this last request. In one story, Theseus is too distracted by his thoughts about Ariadne to remember to change his sails from black to white. When King Aegeus stands on a cliff overlooking the sea and sees the black sails approach over the water, he throws himself into the ocean and drowns. Theseus thus has a bittersweet ascension to the throne of Athens. He goes on to liberate the villages of Attica from the control of Crete and unify them with Athens, forming a powerful independent city-state. He has wild adventures where he fights centaurs, hunts monsters, and travels to the underworld along with his best friend to help that friend kidnap Persephone, queen of Hades, which didn't go very well. In this story, he takes all the right turns and becomes the great hero he was destined to be. Homer and Langley Collier were born into a New York City family of high pedigree. Their father was a gynecologist at Bellevue Hospital. Their mother was a former opera singer. Both were descended from old, respectable families. Both brothers were precocious. Homer started attending college at the age of 14, while Langley was a semi-professional pianist who also studied chemistry and engineering. In 1909, when the boys were in their mid-twenties, the family moved into a four-story brownstone at 2078 Fifth Avenue in Harlem. Ten years later, their parents separated, and the Collier brothers stayed at the Harlem brownstone with their mother until she passed away in 1929, leaving the brownstone to them. Their father had died six years before, and now the brothers were alone. For a while, their lives went on, Langley bought and sold pianos, and Homer practiced maritime law. They were part of the neighborhood, but that neighborhood was changing. The Great Depression had set in, forcing most of Harlem's old families to sell their homes and move out. The buildings were converted to apartments, and mostly sold or rented to African Americans who had come to the city looking for work. The brothers, surrounded by unfamiliar faces, and not happy to suddenly find themselves in a working-class black neighborhood, had already began to withdraw from society. The telephone, which had been disconnected in 1917, was never reconnected. The brothers stopped paying their utility bills, and in 1928, the electricity, water, and gas had already been turned off. They had a single, small kerosene heater for the entire brownstone. Langley would get water from nearby parks with water pumps in them, and then in 1933, Homer went blind, from hemorrhages behind his eyes. To care for his brother, Langley quit his job and devoted his time to feeding him, bathing him, reading to him, and playing the piano for him. Langley fed Homer a diet of a hundred oranges a week, black bread, and peanut butter, which Langley thought would eventually cure Homer's blindness. Langley also began to tinker and invent, adapting a Model T engine to generate electricity and making them a crystal radio. Langley would leave the house after dark, scrounging for food in the local trash cans and collecting various items that piqued his interest while he was at it. Sometimes he walked for miles across Harlem and Brooklyn. He was dressed in a shabby, tattered suit, 
held together by pins with an old boating cap on his head. He said it was the only way to avoid being robbed. He would bring back cardboard boxes, old phone books, umbrellas, folding beds and chairs, rusted bicycles, guns, bowling balls, plaster busts, bed springs, baby carriages, broken machinery, and always newspapers. Langley said that when Homer's sight finally got better, he would want to catch up on the news. Langley's items were added to the collection they inherited from his father, which included thousands of medical books, organs pickled in jars, and an early x-ray machine, as well as Langley's huge collection of musical instruments, including 14 pianos, two organs, bugles, violins, accordions, and a clavichord. The bundles of newspapers began to pile up, so the brothers would put them into stacks. Then the stacks became walls, and the walls became tunnels. Tunnels that were often partially filled with Langley's collections. Eventually there would be about 120 tons of stuff accumulated throughout the house. Homer's inflammatory rheumatism paralyzed him, but both brothers were afraid of going to a doctor. They were convinced that they would permanently blind Homer or even kill him. Langley became Homer's only connection to the outside world. In 1938, a real estate agent offered the Collier brothers $125,000 for their brownstone, which they refused. The New York Times reported on it and repeated local rumors that the Colliers were secretly rich but kept the house full of cash since they were afraid of depositing anything in a bank. This led to several burglary attempts on the house, which only made Langley and Homer more paranoid. Langley, the tinkerer, constructed traps throughout the house to deter, catch, or kill anyone foolish enough to enter unawares. But now the brothers were living urban legends, and the attention increased. When workers from Consolidated Edison arrived in 1939 to remove the two useless gas meters and force their way in, a crowd of supposedly a thousand curious people gathered to observe. In 1942, the bank that held the mortgage on the brownstone tried to evict them since they hadn't paid their mortgage in three years. The bank sent a crew to throw the brothers out and clean up the house, but the ensuing chaos made the neighbors call the police. When the cops arrived, they tried to get in the house by breaking down the front door, only to find that on the other side of the door was a floor-to-ceiling wall of stuff, part of Langley's collections. The police and crewmen were finally able to get in, and found Langley sitting in a clearing among the junk piles and newspapers. Saying nothing, Langley pulled out his checkbook and wrote a check for the balance of the mortgage on the brownstone, $6,700, about $100,000 today, and kicked everyone else out. Things went quiet at the Collier house for a while, as Langley continued to care for Homer and slip out on his nightly excursions. Then, around March 9, 1947, Langley was returning one night with food for Homer, making his way through a newspaper tunnel that was two feet wide and lined with rusty bed springs when he accidentally triggered one of his own traps. Three metal bread boxes, a suitcase, and several bundles of newspapers fell on Langley, trapping him and then suffocating him. He was only ten feet from Homer, who was seated in his chair in his old blue and white bathrobe patiently waiting for Langley to return. He must have heard the accident, but was paralyzed and couldn't move to help him. As Langley's body decomposed, the smell alerted one of the neighbors that there might have been a dead body in the Collier house. 
but the police found it impossible to get into the house to investigate. They had to dig their way through the old newspapers and piles of junk for five hours before they discovered Homer Collier, whom no one but Langley had seen for 14 years. Homer had starved to death about 10 hours earlier, sitting in his chair, waiting for his brother, who never returned. In another story, Asterion the Minotaur is dreaming in his labyrinth. He dreams of the gentleness of his mother, Queen Pasiphae, who would hold him and sing to him, gently stroking his shaggy head. On warm nights, she would take him for walks on the palace wall, and they would look up at the stars together, and she would tell him of the constellations. There's the great bear, she would say, pointing up into the darkness. And he would stare and squint until he would start to see faint lines in the sky. But he could never truly see it the way she wanted him to. He could only ever see it all at once. The endless expanse of darkness, studied with glittering lights, like jewels scattered over a black cloth. He dreams of Daedalus, the master craftsman who designed his prison. As Asterion grew into adolescence, he found that he was always hungry. At first it irritated him, then it pained him, finally it enraged him. He grew taller and stronger every day, and his insatiable hunger drove him to outbursts of anger, even violence. And it was flesh he wanted, only flesh, living flesh, human flesh. He lost what little ability he had to speak, and could now only grunt and bellow like a great bull, a bull that thought it was a man. Minos's bull, the Minotaur. He was truly a monster after all, the people said, sent by the gods to punish us. But even if he could have been killed by any man on Crete, he was still of royal blood, and his parents refused to consider executing him. Daedalus the great crafter was used to being given impossible tasks. So he built a maze to entrap the dangerous creature, a labyrinth so complex Daedalus himself barely managed to find his way out of it once it was completed. The Minotaur would never escape. Now Asterion dreams of his days spent wandering the endless, empty hallways, running his hands across the stone surface and feeling the complex patterns in the stone. Queen Pasiphae had quietly asked Daedalus if he could make Asterion's imprisonment less harsh, and he was not a heartless man though he was mostly inspired by the artistic challenge of creating a labyrinth that was both a prison and a solace of sorts. He inscribed the walls of the labyrinth with intricate raised carvings. When Asterion first discovered them, he was baffled, but eventually, he couldn't tell how long, he began to understand the patterns in the stone. It was a kind of language, words and sentences that were understood through touch. The walls told the old ancient stories, Prometheus stealing fire from the gods, King Tantalus bringing ambrosia to his people, Demeter walking the earth looking for her daughter Persephone, the musical contest between Marcius and Apollo, which ended with Marcius being flayed alive. The walls seemed endless, so the stories seemed endless also. And there were new stories that Asterion had never heard. Tales of odd little men and women who lived in glittering metal cities as big as mountains, 
they proclaimed themselves the new race of gods, and for their pride were utterly swept from the earth by Poseidon's wrathful waters. The stories on the walls made Asterion forget his hunger and his rage, at least temporarily. No matter where he started, he found the paths always led him back to his chamber at the center of the maze, where Daedalus had left his final touch. The ceiling of the chamber was dotted with tiny lights, like stars, and through some hidden mechanism it slowly shifted to match the movement of the night sky. Asterion is dreaming of this false sky, his prison, his labyrinth, his world. For a moment he wonders in his dreaming if he will someday find his own story inscribed on the wall of his maze. Will that mean he was a story all along? That he himself was someone else's dream? Perhaps everything everywhere is just the dreams of the gods themselves. Then a sound wakes him, and his hunger bites at him, and he rises. <laughs>